It's perhaps unsurprising that people in developing countries with more currency crises, I think, intuitively get it a lot quicker. And I think also that's why the book uh, Check Your Financial Privilege, it, the title makes sense because people that, that are in relatively stable currency regimes are not necessarily going to be the first people to understand why something Bitcoin has interesting global implications and, and might be something that is demanded worldwide. You're listening to Because of Bitcoin a podcast that shares the personal stories of how Bitcoin is having a real impact in people's lives, including mine. I'm your host, Mauricio Di Bartolomeo, the co-founder and CSO of Ledin. And without further ado, let's get started with today's story. Our experiences when we're young tend to have a big influence on who we become later in life. Some are luckier than others in this regard in getting a head start, but life can be magical in that with hard work and dedication, almost anyone can make their dreams come true. And today's story is a great example of that. In this episode, I'm excited to be joined by Lynn Alden, an engineer, investor, and writer whose research and commentary reaches hundreds of thousands of people every day. She retired at the young age of 33 from her career in engineering. And since then, she's been an investor and independent researcher. And how she got there is one of the most inspiring stories I've ever heard. She founded Lynn Alden Investment Strategy in 2016 and started writing about Bitcoin in 2017. Her Bitcoin content made waves in the community almost instantly, with a clean and clear style that resonated with many. Lynn's work has been featured in The Wall Street Journal, The Business Network, Money Watch, Times Money Magazine, and many more. I've been a longtime admirer of Lynn's work, and this was a very special conversation. I hope you enjoy it as much as I did. Lynn, I'm a huge fan of your work, and I, I think you have actually one of the most inspiring stories that, that I've heard. I thought it would be great if, uh, if maybe we could start at the beginning, if you could share a little bit about your childhood. Yeah, my childhood was, uh, you know, kind of complicated, right? So, uh, you know, there's basically, it was, it was separation of parents, and then it was, you know, different degrees of, of kind of financial struggle. And so, for example, I spent uh, several years as a kid living with my mother, and we had various levels of homelessness. So we moved around from, to different homeless shelters. At one point, we lived in a car. Eventually, I, I transitioned over to living with my uh, father instead. And there's a whole history there, but basically then I grew up in a, in a trailer park with him. So it was more financially stable, but it was still a pretty modest, you know, kind of lifestyle. You know, from there, I had a you know pretty happy childhood, even, even when I was homeless. I mean, one thing I like to stress is that my mom, uh, you know, she took really good care of me. Just that, you know, we were running into uh, basically just, you know, social challenges and financial challenges. And so I had a, you know, kind of a, a, a loving childhood, but certainly a, a turbulent one. You wrote an amazing uh, blog post about it, which I personally would recommend everybody to read because it's actually one of the most inspiring uh, pieces that, that I've ever read. And, and it speaks to, to that. The title of the blog post is What Being Homeless Taught Me About Money and Happiness. And you can find it linked in the show notes below. I've seen a lot of people, you know, as, I, as I've grown up, life kind of puts obstacles in your way. And, and you, know, you, you may be born with a set of cards and then your, your cards kind of change uh, as you get older. But, but really how you react to those challenges is, is really all the difference, right? Because there are people that will react very differently to a particular challenge. And I think the way that you were able to just continue to learn from everything that you were going through and then kind of put together the pieces to create your your personal 
roadmap, your personal plan, uh, and and execute on that plan uh, with such discipline. And it's just admirable. Uh, you know, I, I can't say that enough. There was a line in your blog that says you saw the two halves of your parents and you wanted to essentially put their strengths together to basically not go through their same struggles. And I'm curious if you could speak a little bit about what you saw, what, what the better parts of each of them were and what other sort of kind of superpowers that you combined and maybe how that relates to this concept of having this financial house in order. One way to describe it is that if, if if any step along the way of like earning money, saving money, and then and then investing money and growing money is disrupted, then the entire process ends up getting disrupted. And so, you know, one thing I emphasize is that my father, for example, was a you know he was able to earn income, a moderate income, but it was it was a reliable one, and then he was a good saver, but he was not like a compounder. He he basically made a certain poor investment decisions. You know, he never really was in the mindset of trying to create wealth. Is always just making sure that there was like, say, you know, half a year, or a year's worth of savings, and then that's that's kind of sufficient. Whereas my mother, I mean, she was especially in her early years better at pursuing income and a little bit more focused on her career and focused on growth in that sense. But her her downside was the saving part. The thing I tried to emphasize is that it's you know it's it's about trying to find an income that you know, work for you, but that is is pushing you uh, so that you have that margin to save more, but then also building that mindset of, of you know, low time preference is, is now that, you know, the common term, but back then I didn't use that term, but basically changing your time preference, being a saver, and then making sure that those, that that money is also in something that, that grows well over time, then it's, it's not compounding in a bad investment decision. Unfortunately, what a lot of investors do is they buy into the tops of things and then they sell at the bottom of things and they kind of, uh, you know, underperform a lot of the stock indices or a lot of the other assets that they might be involved with, usually because they're, they're timing it poorly. It's a fascinating point. And so I guess just to kind of summarize what you said, it's your ability to earn money, it's your ability to put that money away. And then there's the additional fact that you have to put that money away to work for you uh, and not just have it sit there. Do you think that captures that idea to some degree? I, I think so. And especially in the current era where, uh, you know, saving in normal currencies is just not a super viable long-term plan because you're getting interest rates that are below inflation. I, I had a tragic story of a, you know, a, a physician reach out because they're focused on helping people, focused on their on their career of of medicine. They didn't put a lot of emphasis on investing. They mostly saved in cash, and a lot of that cash was unfortunately wiped out. There's a lot of stories like that out there, and it's 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 heartbreaking. Everyone's talking about inflation right now, and for good reason. But it's not actually something that an eight-year-old typically thinks about unless that eight-year-old is Lynn Alden. I was listening to one of your podcasts and you mentioned that you started building your own gold coin and silver coin treasury at age eight, which, which is insane to me uh, to hear that somebody would start buying something or, or you would get to this concept that it makes sense to buy gold or silver at that age. What, what inspired you to buy that at that age? Were you just experimenting or what did you read something that made you go, aha? So I guess a couple factors. One is I was, for whatever reason, aware of the topic of inflation. That was back in a time when you could still get positive real yields, uh, but it was still something that, you know, I was kind of intuitively aware of is that, you know, these, you know, if you're saving paper currency, uh, you basically look at it like it's literally paper. It's not worth anything. And number two was I started to get interested in coin collecting when I was a kid. 
I had an uncle that had this extensive coin collection and it was always fascinating to see coins from different countries. And those weren't, you know, made out of any sort of precious metals. And then eventually, you know, when, when I would say get little gifts for, you know, holidays or birthdays and things like that, I started to receive some silver ones. And, and I, you know, basically wanted to pursue that and kind of enhance my coin collection in that direction. And then started becoming more interested in, in, in silver and gold, uh, you know, kind of for its own sake. And so I had that kind of early interest in, in precious metals and the history of money. And you said that you were aware of inflation at the time. Like, is do you remember at all? If was there at any moment was there your uncle that collected mesh metals that told you that you should save in them? Like, was there was there a mentor or something that made it click for you before you bought them, or or, or was it just that as you saw the value go up once you got them as gifts that reinforced this idea? I think it was just. It might have been just math class, even like you know when you're when you're a kid and you're doing like little word problems about you know, compounding or things like that. I was always, uh, you know, it's kind of ahead of the curve in math. And so we'd have a, a thing like, okay, if you save it this much, what happens over this many years? And there'd be like, you know, an inflation component. And I was like, oh, so it basically like you get yield from a bank, but also the money itself kind of loses value. And so I, I it's it's hard to remember exactly when you're, especially when you're that young, where the spark came from, but it was something that for whatever reason, I was, you know, aware of that history of, of inflation. When you started buying gold, what happened? Like, did, did you find the prices of your coins went up and that kind of reinforced this idea that investing was a smart decision? Like, how was that feedback loop from what you were reading in theory and what was playing out in, in after you made your investment decisions? The funny thing is I, I didn't even check the price that often. Uh, that was actually back. It, it was kind of, a, in hindsight, a lucky time to start because that was back when you know gold was only a, a few hundred dollars an ounce uh, and, and silver was very cheap. Uh, and for you know that you know that meme like uh, one one bitcoin is one bitcoin. When I was a kid, it was kind of like one silver coin is one silver coin. It's like I'm not checking the dollar price, uh, and so I wasn't I wasn't obsessing over the 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 fiat price. And and so I think for me, it was just about stacking. It was about basically adding to my collection rather than the feedback of price itself. You know, I was basically aware that the dollar itself is has historically been one of the stronger currencies. But I still understood that it, you know, it, it devalues over the very long term. I, I knew that it, you know, used to be tied to gold, but then was was decoupled. I didn't know the full story, but I was like, and it was it was the dollar that went down compared to gold rather than the other way around. So I, I still understood a lot of the basics, even though I wasn't more like stacking rather than you know actively thinking about it and trading and and, and frequent price checking. But that's it's actually insane to me that you could have that conviction at that young age to just not even look at price. Like it took me years, not years, but it took me some time to get to even that conviction with Bitcoin from the moment I started reading about it till the moment I bought it. And now I just don't look at price, right? I just have it, I hold it. And, and I don't necessarily think about it because to the point, the conviction is so high that you know, it's just a matter of time. Over the last three years, Lynn has continued to bring a unique perspective on Bitcoin given her deep understanding of macroeconomics, precious metals, and her unique life experiences. This unique perspective has helped her become one of the most important voices in the Bitcoin investment community over the last three years. When did you first come across Bitcoin? Uh, kind of embarrassingly early. Um, and, and I say embarrassing because I didn't buy it, obviously, until uh, later. But I, I, I came across it probably around... It might have been late 2010, and I, you know, I had a friend that could mine it on her computer, and I thought, oh, I should, you know, I have a graphics card, I should do that, um, and just didn't. You know how like a lot of people say that they had to encounter it multiple times before they really kind of they 
they got it. And then, you know, I, I kind of revisited a few years later. It's like, you know, a few hundred dollars uh, per coin. And back then I just kind of was like, oh, that's like that libertarian money, the, like the, you know, like it's, it's, it's neat. Like I, I'm rooting for those guys, but I don't know how to value it. And I was like, can't you copy it? Like, how do I know that there's not going to be another one come along that's better? And, you know, they could just be like market dilution. You could have like, you know, 50 of these things and they're all, they all have 2% market share and, you know, how do they hold value? And then it was during that huge 2017 bull run, uh, it became large enough that as, as an investment researcher at the time, I had to start taking it seriously as an asset class. And my analysis at the time was it's really interesting technology. I was like, it's interesting, but I would just be very careful of position sizes because it, it's, you know, I, I don't really consider it a good investment. And that ended up working out pretty well because, of course, you had a blow off top, but then you had a crash. And, and they generally underperformed most other assets for, for you know, the next two years or more. But I, I kept tabs on the industry. Uh, I kept looking into it. And specifically, the, the kind of the resolution of that block size war you know, why Bitcoin won out over Bitcoin Cash and, you know, what were the, the trade-offs there and why, you know, how, why did that go the way it went kind of, I think, led me to the realization of how, you know, rather immutable Bitcoin is. And I think that realization, along with network effect analysis, is, is what, you know, made me kind of uh, become more convicted uh, on Bitcoin, at least, at least you know, forced me to then start looking a lot more into the underlying details and, and what makes it unique. And so I've been, you know, really since late 2019, I started to get more, more bullish on it, but that I, I, I didn't buy it until that, uh, that crash in 2020, uh, that, the COVID crash. That's, that's when I, I, I started buying my first Bitcoins. It was actually the precious metal background that I think that let me solve it because during that crash, I watched gold go down and I watched silver in particular crash. And I was like, as soon as this gets reliquified, you know, these things are going to pop back up. And I saw that Bitcoin was doing the same thing. I was like, it looks like silver. It's like, you know, it's like the straight line down. And I was like, as soon as this like deflationary, like crunch liquidity crisis things behind us, this thing's probably going to shoot back up. You know, that kind of background and, and being familiar with precious metals, I think, helped me identify, you know, kind of a good buying opportunity for Bitcoin. That's really, really fascinating. It was, it was interesting because the, the recovery from the COVID crash, I think, was faster than a lot of people uh, expected it would be. And, and it's fascinating to see that there were people like yourselves that in the, in the context of all of this, you know, you really literally bought when there was blood in the, in the water, right? And, and that requires, again, you know, a great deal of conviction uh, to, to, to have that poise to, to act in, in those circumstances. How would you say Bitcoin has impacted your, your life professionally? Well, so I think because it's still a relatively small industry, most companies are still in the startup realm rather than these, you know, public corporations. And so there's, you can have pretty good access uh, to, you know, to people from different companies, you know, if, if you have some sort of platform or, or you know, uh, and, or if you just reach out. And so I, I generally found that, you know, it certainly added complexity to my professional work because I had to spin up on this, this whole new you know, technology, money, implications, uh, you know, not just not just the details of Bitcoin, but then also stable coins. And then also, what, what does this mean maybe for the long-term banking system or what does it mean for, for other monetary assets? Uh, and so one, it, it added a lot of extra hours of work, but it was rewarding. Um, but then yeah, uh, professionally, it, just, it opened doors to, to meet people that are working on it at a pretty deep level uh, in different areas. Uh, and I've been very kind of grateful. And then it, it also, I think, you know, crystallize my view towards towards human rights uh that's always been a uh, a big thing for me but it it, it kind of i think forced me to, to think more globally in that regard 
And so basically meeting people that I think are doing really important work in human rights and how they can potentially use Bitcoin and, and stable coins and other tools like that uh, in their work. Yeah, it's been it's been huge in that sense. And it, it's, it's funny because it's, you know, it's by far the most controversial asset that I have an opinion on. Right. So there, there are people that, you know, say stopped following my work because I, I you know, uh, emphasized that I was bullish on it. But then, of course, there's also there's a bunch of new followers that, that came in and said, oh, you know, because, you know, I was not known in the in the Bitcoin space. And, I, you know, now I have some followers from that space. So it's just I, I just try to be objective and, and put my work out there. That's great. And, and uh, shout out to uh, Alex Gladstein of the Human Rights Foundation. That's uh, the, the Oslo Freedom Forum is one of the best events I've ever been to. And that's where I actually, I think we had the pleasure to meet to that point specifically. You know, to me, I, I've been very, very grateful, uh, especially because of the people. I think being able to work in Bitcoin is very fulfilling because I, I feel that I get to do work that impacts people back home. Uh, I'm no longer in Venezuela physically, but I, I can do work that helps people in, in different parts of the world. And I have to say that that is probably one of the things I enjoy the most uh, about being in, in the Bitcoin space. When you were starting to learn about Bitcoin, where, where did you go to learn about Bitcoin? But is there anything that you read that stood out to you or anything that you would suggest to somebody that you know, wants to get perhaps a better understanding of Bitcoin? For me, it was not a, you know, a book was not an entry point. It was more like podcasts, uh, I, I think were kind of the, how I spun up on things. I mean, obviously I read the white paper. I, I think the, the rise of, of Bitcoin podcasts was, was how I kind of first understood it. And then once I listened to them, I also went and read some of the books. But for me, that kind of came later rather than a, a starting point. Was there any podcast that you like that's still around that you would recommend? Yeah, I came across uh, Peter McCormack's podcast, uh, you know, saw Preston Pish talking about it, especially because Preston had a value investing background. Uh, I think that spoke to me to some extent, right? It, you basically you find an entry point that kind of bridges gaps, right? So if you're if you're a value investor and you see another value investor is interested in it, that might you know kind of entice you to look into it more. And so for me, it was it was kind of like some of either just the biggest Bitcoin podcasts because those those tend to be the first ones you kind of come across, um, or it, it's it's existing podcasts that you knew. Uh, like say presence that you then hear talking about it. That's actually a really great insight, and I'm a huge fan of of both Peter and Preston. And we'll, we'll put the links down below uh, on the show notes for for people to check them out. How would you think that a North American investor, you know, would look at Bitcoin? Was it would it be like a, a hedge on inflation or a growth vehicle, like a like a risky growth stock, or you know, from I guess value in, investing standpoint uh, or viewpoint? How do you how do you categorize Bitcoin in a portfolio? So I think most people would think of it as a, a speculation or like a, the equivalent of like a tech stock, right? And then their first thought is, well, there's Bitcoin, but then there's all these others. Maybe those uh, can give better returns. And then they look into the altcoins. And yeah, that's kind of that whole that whole pathway happens. For me, I, I treat it more like kind of more in the precious metal camp, basically, or, or commodity, something that, you know, doesn't have profit margins you need to worry about. But of course, you're instead looking at general supply and demand characteristics, uh, you know, assessments of the network effect and if it's going to retain and grow market share and then grow the pie as a whole is just more is more outside capital going to want to go into the space. And it's, it's it's perhaps unsurprising that people in, in, in developing countries with more currency crises, I think, I think intuitively get it a lot quicker. Uh, and I think also that's why you know the the, the book uh, check your financial privilege it, the title makes sense because you know people that, that are in relatively stable currency regimes are not necessarily going to be the first people to understand why something Bitcoin 
uh, is globally, uh, you know, has, has interesting global implications and, and might be something that is demanded worldwide. Uh, they think, well, we have money. Like, why do we need these other payment? Why do we need other payment apps? Why do we need to save in something else? Uh, we can just put money into a 401k and, you know, diversify stocks and, and you know, real estate that always goes up. And, you know, that, that's kind of, I think, the, the, the framework that a lot of people in developed countries look at it. And so, we, you know, chain analysis shows that, you know, that, you know, I don't think they break it down into, into say, Bitcoin specifically, but their crypto adoption index, uh, like 19 out of 20 countries uh, in the top 20 are developing countries. They they be classified as emerging markets or frontier markets, uh, and the only the only one developed country on the top 20 is United States. And I think it's you know we 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 kind of approach that for different directions. Uh, so I I view it. For most people, if I if I sell the idea, it's it's the idea of having a non-zero position. You know, if if you were to have say gold, you might instead have gold and Bitcoin uh, alongside your stocks, your cash, your real estate, whatever else you might have. Whereas, uh, you know, I think the message is is quite different in, in other markets, especially where they have, uh, in many cases, people don't invest in stocks uh, in, in their local country. Whereas it's 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 relatively it's quite common in the United States. And so I I think the message has to be tailored to the type. The, the things that the that the audience understands. That's a really really good point, and because I I actually think it's it's unsurprising that the countries that have very accessible uh, uh, equity markets, like say the United States or even parts of Korea, right? Like they see tokens and Bitcoin as just another thing to trade, and and that's why you know many. Uh, Many exchanges are, you know, feel a lot like equity exchanges. They have all these options, like the similar similar setup, right? Versus when you think of someone like a value investor looking at Bitcoin, they're looking at it more like a commodity, right? Like like this almost like a public utility or this sort of this resource, this internet resource that can move money or internet protocol that can move money. And I think to your point, in places like Venezuela, where no one has ever seen a stock, no one has ever bought a stock, the, the Caracas Stock Exchange is, is virtually accessible for by no one. People's innate sort of reaction is this is money, right? Versus the people that have traded stocks in the past and and are used to them, they'll see it as potentially another stock, uh, and that's actually pretty. Uh, I find that to be true, especially in Latam, because. Generally speaking, LATAM has very little access to local equities, and the only people that can get into U.S. equities are the hyper, hyper rich. Uh, and so to them, it's not really representative. But I find that a lot of young people here have equity, and no surprise when they see Bitcoin, they say, well, why don't I buy Dogecoin? Like they almost treat them as similar, right? Like they don't, they, they look at it as what stock can go up higher? You know, what's the AMC of this world? Uh, and, uh, and I find that, like you mentioned, it's very related to how close you are to stocks locally can can kind of influence that view. That's fascinating. Yeah, it's 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 one of those things where I think a lot of people don't understand that most of the world doesn't have access to you know easy stock market investing still. Uh, and even if they did, that you know in many cases you know because of the structure of of the, of the reserve currency status and how you know we kind of have global money just pouring into our stock market that ours has been better performing. Than, than average over the past 40 years. Whereas many stock markets, you know, have gone like sideways for 10, 15 years now, in some cases longer. Um, and so a lot of people in the world either don't have access to, to equities or 
it's just equities have not been the you know the 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 gains uh you know the performers that that Americans are used to from stocks that you know just just seem like they always go up and of course we know that's not the case forever uh but there are there are multi-decade periods where that can be the case and so it kind of uh, I I think people don't realize that that's not that's not normal that's kind of an anomaly you you spent a lot of time which I believe you invest a lot of time to share your knowledge and to help people learn and get better and and better understand economics and finance. Like what makes that fire burn? Like what what motivates you to to just be so altruistic and and just, you know, write such great content? You know, if you're passionate about something, it doesn't feel like work. Um, a lot of times I want to explore something and you know, if, if you're if you're studying something on your own, and this is what this is why universities still have value, even though most of the information you can get online, if there's no kind of catalyst to actually finish it or to to get through the hard parts, you're more likely to just not do it. And I generally find that that if I want to learn something challenging about economics or economic history or kind of put some pieces together, you know, if I can't explain it to others, then I don't understand it myself yet. Basically, that that motivation to publish uh, and answer questions I'm getting in emails and and answer questions I'm seeing posed, or you know, kind of get to the the heart of a riddle. For me, writing is how I I both educate myself and others. And then also, I think it's just the fact that you know we live in such crazy times in terms of financial history. I think we're kind of you know undergoing somewhat of a a, a, a you know kind of a, a shift uh, in the monetary system kind of a, you know, a fourth turning type of event or, you know, like a, a change in, in how global finance is structured, which ha- tends to happen every, every 50 years or so, you know, call it. it. Obviously, it depends on the details. But generally, you know, as technology changes and as geopolitics change and as things change, you know, we go through these these evolutions of how we structure the, you know, the global interconnections of money uh, and how financial markets work. Uh, and so because there's so much going on, I just try to you know, kind of monitor that, analyze it, and then share what I'm learning, rather than say focusing on managing money, which is primarily something you do for high net worth individuals. Whereas if you if you focus on on providing research and, and public research, then then you're actually, in my view, helping like a, a much broader audience. That's very very fascinating, and and uh, I'm I'm a I'm a, I'm a subscriber of both your premium and free uh, accounts. They are amazing. I. I Strongly recommend them to anyone looking to learn uh, and, and stay on top of of all of this. Um, it's 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 a great deal of 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 information, but it's all presented in a way that is very easy to read and understand. What would you say to somebody that is maybe not entirely happy with their finances right now and is is looking to make things a little bit better for them or their family? Like you know, is there is there kind of one piece of advice that resonated for you or or any, any kind of tip? I think for me, the biggest thing from the beginning was always having a side hustle. And I guess one way to phrase that is, is you don't really get ahead if you do an average amount. Uh, and so if, by, if, if you're kind of feel like you're stuck in a rut financially, you know, at least initially, it, 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 it's you know, hard work that is then directed in a smart direction. Uh, is a way they can kickstart it. So obviously one is to, to plug any obvious leaks you have in terms of major unnecessary spending and things like that. But then for a lot of people, it comes down to tr- trying to figure out how to get the top line up. And then sometimes those side hustles can become whole new careers. Uh, basically, you know, I think most people should try to be somewhat diversified to have multiple you know, skills and, and knowledge sets that they build. And so 
you know, if someone's ever considering changing their career or they're looking for ways to increase their income, we luckily live in a world where, you know, the the, the tools for running a, a small business or some sort of small work you can do on the side are, are, you know, more accessible than ever. And so I think, you know, one of my first go-to pieces is to, you know, consider ways to do that because, you know, if you can increase your income by 10% or 20% and you keep your expenses uh, the same, uh, then your savings rate can can go up, you know, fifty percent or a hundred percent, depending on 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 what your saving margin was before. And so, a seemingly small difference can actually make a huge difference in terms of long term compounding and saving. As we get to the towards the end of the show, uh, you know, is there anything you you want to share or can share about what's next for you professionally? Uh, well, I still plan on 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 doing what I've been doing, uh, which is which is providing public research. You know, one thing I've been emphasizing a little bit more over the past uh, year is is some work in the startup space uh, in Bitcoin. And so I'm on the I'm on independent director for Swan Bitcoin, and then I'm also uh, an advisor to uh, Ego Death Capital, where we're you know we're basically raising money and then trying to 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 build out some second layer you know infrastructure on Bitcoin. For me, it's 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 interesting not just to write about something, but then to also, uh, in, in some tiny way, uh, maybe to help shape some of it. I think it also kind of brings back some of my engineering background because I, I think naturally you want to. I generally want to feel like I'm building something rather than just writing about it. And so I, I've been focusing a little bit more uh, on that that building side, or you know, or at least at least helping the the different pieces get together uh, yeah, to have building be done. Well, that's great. Um, I, I actually, so you know, we're we're big fans of the Swan team. You know, love that you're getting more involved in the Bitcoin. I'm sure we, as a community, uh, uh, will be very grateful to to have more and more of Lynn. Uh, it would be uh, it would be great. I could we could be going on for hours, but maybe we're going to leave it here for now. And and uh, maybe we, can we tell people? I'm going to put all the links for all of your websites and everything below. But can you tell people where they can find you or where they can learn more about your work? Uh, so I'm at lindalden.com. That's where they can find most of my work. And I'm also uh, on Twitter at lindaldencontact. Great. Well, thank you so, so much for your time, Lynn. Uh, really, really appreciate you having, uh, having you on. And I'm sure people that listen will, will find a lot, of, a lot of valuable stuff in here. Thanks again and hope to see you soon. Thanks. I, I really appreciate it. There are many bright minds in the Bitcoin community and Lynn is certainly one of the brightest. Her work has helped many, myself included, better understand macroeconomic concepts and how they impact Bitcoin. As Lynn's story shows us, with education and perseverance, you can get almost anywhere in life. Knowledge is power, and you can gain that knowledge by being diligent and disciplined about your financial education and your financial habits. Her understanding of the current financial system and its flaws allowed her to see the potential in Bitcoin's gold-like properties and break down the investment case for her readers at an opportune time. She is a sought-after voice in the Bitcoin community and someone who will undoubtedly continue making a huge impact in the industry as it grows. I hope you enjoyed the conversation with Lynn as much as I did. And as always, all of the resources and books we mentioned in the episode will be available in the show notes. Huge thank you to Lynn for joining me and thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this Because of Bitcoin episode, I would be very grateful for the five seconds it would take you to drop us a review and give us a rating on your favorite podcasting platform. This will really help us reach even more listeners. And if you'd like to learn more about Bitcoin, be sure to check out our newsletter by subscribing at ledn.io. That's ledn.io. 
Again, this was Mauricio Di Bartolomeo. Stay tuned for our next episode. And until then, muchas gracias y los quiero mucho. Chao, chao.